I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Laura Bates, author and founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, and she's also the author of Men Who Hate Women, From Incels to Pickup Artists, The Truth About Extreme Misogyny and How It Affects Us All. Uh, As more information about those involved in the capital attack comes to light, Everyday Sexism founder Laura Bates says it becomes increasingly clear that there are significant ties between the alt-right, extreme misogyny, and white supremacy. She says that these white male supremacists online groups have erupted into deadly real-life violence before, and it's terrorism that needs to be addressed as it continues to move from a dark corner of the internet into our everyday lives. She's spent 18 months undercover as a man in his 20s, drawn in through YouTube and online gaming platforms, and exploring the depths of communities like incels, pickup artists, Men Going Their Own Way, MRIs, which stands for Men's Rights Activists, and more. Uh, she has been, Laura has been uh, named in CNN's top 10 visionary women's list and won Cosmopolitan's Ultimate Women Woman of the Year Award, amongst many other awards as well. Welcome to the show, Laura. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Okay. Men Who Hate Women. Who hate women. Uh, I find it very interesting that you actually went underground to explore this topic and obviously I got and to be able to write this book but what are we talking about that white male supremacist online groups um, are related to men hating women talk to us about that what's the connection what are you talking about so we're talking about a number of different communities um, obsessed with with misogyny and with ideas of women owing them sex and ideas that as men, they should be in control, that they should be powerful, that they should be abusing and raping women. Um, but there are very close ties between these groups and with the rise of white supremacy, neo-Nazis, the far right in ways that aren't necessarily often recognized. So you can see it both sides. You can see it that in these male supremacist communities, there is an obsession with racism. These are groups, for example, where they're not just furious that women aren't having sex with them, they're particularly furious if women are having sex with black men, for example, who they perceive to be inferior to themselves and therefore they think that they should be owed sex first. But you can also see it the other way if you look at white supremacy and if you look at some of the deep-rooted misogyny that that particular movement is predicated on in a way that isn't often recognized. So, for example, we know that white supremacists are obsessed with what they describe as replacement theory. They're obsessed with birth rates. In other words, their their greatest focus really is this idea that that the kind of white um, super race is being eroded. And in order to um, suggest that, they have to conjure up this vision of a kind of dehumanized commodity of vulnerable white women being plundered by um, invading hordes of non-white men. And of course, that is a very, very deep-rooted misogynistic view to take. And in order to um, reset that, what these communities want is to see white women forced uh, into sexual slavery to produce a kind of master race. They talk about um, forcibly sterilizing and forcing abortions on women of color. So there is just such huge, 
huge misogyny there at the root of some of those movements that often really goes unrecognized. And it also means in a practical sense that we don't recognize one of the main paths for radicalization into white supremacy is through these misogynistic groups. And they are very open about this. Once you infiltrate these networks, once you get on the inside, they talk openly to each other about how one of the best ways to recruit children, and they target boys as young as 11, is to use anti-feminism and misogyny as a gateway. And they really see it as a kind of slipway to further forms of, of racist extremism. So they're very, very closely connected, but we're not very good at recognizing that as a society when we talk about them or when we try to tackle the problem. So if we, how do we recognize them? I mean, you talk about incels, which I, as you say, many people have no idea what an incel is because it seems that that's one of the ways they do it. Websites, blogs, YouTube, podcasting, all of that. Those are the platforms that they use? That's right. It's a real network, actually, of different forums, uh, private member groups, platforms, chat rooms, and it's much bigger than people realize. So the average person in the street has likely never heard of an incel. And when you tell them what they are, it sounds so ridiculous, so absurd, so extreme, that they assume we must be talking about just a kind of tiny handful of men. So an incel, for example, stands for involuntarily celibate. In other words, these are men who are not getting sex, and they blame women for that. They believe it is their birthright as white men to be given sex by women, that it is a woman's duty to provide that for them, and that women are choosing not to have sex with them, but to choose to have sex with a very specific cohort of attractive men in society who they describe as chads, men who are conventionally attractive. They feel so furious about this that they advocate that these incels should rise up in what they describe as a day of retribution, an incel rebellion, where they will massacre attractive young women and the men who have sex with them in revenge. And I think it's really striking that many people have never heard of these communities when they have often acted on those threats. So this isn't just a handful of men sitting in their mum's basement eating Cheetos and never seeing the light of day. Again and again, men have come offline and carried out massacres explicitly in the name of these ideologies. Whether you're talking about Elliot Rogers' massacre in Santa Barbara, for example, where he deliberately targeted a sorority house. Whether you look at the Toronto van attack, the case of Alec Manassian, who murdered 10 people and injured 16, the vast majority of them women. Or whether you look at the case for example, of a teenager here in the UK who went on a two-month stabbing spree and attempted to murder three different women. These are just some of the cases where men have explicitly tried to kill women because they hate women and feel that they're owed sex. Altogether in the book, I trace this explicit motive and membership of these communities to the murder or serious injury of over 100 people in the last 10 years alone. And at that point, it becomes pretty shocking that most people have never even heard of them. And the reason is because we don't talk about this particular motive. When these men commit these acts, we don't use the word terrorist to describe them. And even in news coverage of some of these events, the, the news media has foregrounded issues like their childhood troubles or their mental health, describes them as lone wolves, describes these as, as isolated incidents, and doesn't treat them as terrorism, which means that as a society, we're poorly equipped to recognize the threat that these communities pose. So what is the solution to that? As you say, you mentioned three, I think, really salient points. Number one, most of us just beginning 
just for starters, have not heard of incels. And and number two, it's considered an isolated event or the media kind of, when, when the media reports it, these are isolated events. And we don't really emphasize the fact that they're done to women specifically either. You know, there may be an event, but, you know, people got killed. But we don't emphasize that the, maybe the, the genders or, or that, it, that, that it's women. So what are we talking about in terms of numbers? Like in terms of numbers who are, you know, of, the, of these groups, I guess. You're, these are groups. These are not isolated incidents. These are not individual lone men who are just, uh, you know, crazy uh, or mentally ill. It's far bigger than that. So when I say far bigger, bigger how much bigger? Yeah, go ahead. So some of the individual groups that I investigated for the book numbered in the hundreds of thousands for an individual community alone. Um, You might be looking at, for example, within any one of these communities, you might say have a Reddit community that's tens of thousands strong. Then there might be an individual forum that actually has 100,000 users. There might be a Facebook group with another 12,000 users. There might be an individual vlogger on YouTube who has, say, 60 or 70 million hits for their videos about this topic alone. So it's much bigger than we've perhaps recognized before. The experts I spoke to for the book estimated that we're talking about a community internationally in the hundreds of thousands. And it is certainly a community um, with a a greater presence in the United States, in Canada, in Australia, and in the United Kingdom than elsewhere. So those are particular hotspots. Although it is a global movement, it's certainly bigger in the States and in Canada in particular. Is that because these are the wealthy countries? Well, I think that it's partly marked by the kind of backlash that we're seeing in those countries to to gender equality and to kind of civil rights movements as a whole. And this is another good example of where you can't really separate it from the kind of populist, white nationalist, white supremacist backlash that we're also seeing against other forms of progress. Um, This is very much something that's driven by white, middle-class, educated, college-educated men. That's the kind of demographic that we're talking about. Um, Very often when you discuss these groups, it's kind of assumed that you're talking about um, economically disadvantaged men who are furious about women taking their jobs in the workplace. But the research doesn't really bear that out. These are often really quite privileged men. Um, But they're men who are reacting to a perceived erosion of what they see as their birthright in terms of control in society, whether that's kind of political control or control over women in their personal lives as well. So you went undercover for 18 months. You were an undercover man uh, Mm -hmm. in his 20s. Talk to us about what that was about or that experience and It was about trying to replicate how these groups get their claws into young men and and how slowly and imperceptibly it can happen. Because I think a lot of people, when they hear about these groups, say, well, you know, my daughter, my, sorry, my son, you know, people in my life would never go to these groups. So I don't need to think about this. But that's not how it works. It's a very slow, very clever process of radicalization. So um, I posed as a guy called Alex. Um, I signed up to a bunch of kind of websites that were aimed at young men, you know, websites with a lad in the titles, YouTube platforms that were kind of dealing with the sort of things that these guys are interested in, um, a, a bunch of gaming chat rooms, that kind of thing, a little bit of bodybuilding on a forum. 
And what you see is that the algorithms of certain platforms like YouTube, for example, very gradually nudge you from quite mainstream content into increasingly extreme videos and conspiracy theories and anti-feminist rhetoric. And this becomes very much kind of the wallpaper of your daily life, which normalizes it and, and it kind of inures you to it. You sort of stop recognizing how shocking it is if it's happening all around you on a daily basis on a number of different platforms. And then very, very gradually, people start kind of dropping in hints or links to different websites and you start to get pulled further into these communities where it kind of goes from memes about how outrageous it is that the government's encouraging us to think about women's safety when actually men are the ones most at risk, down that line towards, well, actually, did you know that the gender pay gap is a complete myth and men actually learn a lot less than women? It's just calculated in a very PC woke way to kind of satisfy the liberal mob who control the media. And then from there, it kind of segues a little bit into like, yeah, you know, really men are the ones who should be in control because after all, if you look through history, men are the ones who've done all of the heavy lifting and created the things that people enjoy in society. And from there, it's a kind of shorter step to this idea that, well, women's role is to be complementary to that and women should be just at home supporting men and looking after them and it would be in their interest to do that as well and then from there it's a fairly short step to you know maybe we need to force women to do that to recognize what's good for them you know we're really just thinking about their own needs and an ordered society is one where actually women have fewer rights because things would just run more smoothly and from there you get men sharing their fantasies about women in a dungeon being forced into sexual slavery and suddenly you've gone from point A to point B very, very slowly and gradually. And something that might have seemed incredibly shocking to you if you'd come across that in the first place has been so gradually kind of um, put in front of you and you've been so desensitized to it that it kind of starts to sound sensible. And I wanted to kind of emulate that process to explain to people how this can happen to, to the men that you know, that these aren't just kind of trolls in a dungeon somewhere. These are people walking among us. So what happened to you? You start from month one and you went to 18 months. I mean, what occurred uh, emotionally for you? I mean, you're there, you've embedded yourself in, <clears throat> as, as this undercover man. Um, and there must have been changes. I mean, in, in your perception of all of this, your feelings, could could you at any time feel yourself, what, I mean, not getting, uh, believing some of this stuff or, or uh, explain to us what was happening to you? It was a real roller coaster, actually. There were definitely days when I would come across content that was really, really vile and, and extreme and disgusting and not be shocked by it, for sure, because that process of desensitization happens to anybody who's immersed in this stuff for long enough. You know, you're seeing people sharing really graphic um, tips about how to rape women in their lives, and you're not surprised to see it because these are the communities that you've been immersed in. But there were still moments of just absolute shock and horror for me. I think I was already aware that these communities existed, but I really wasn't aware of just the depth of the hatred in them. And that was something that was very difficult to stomach and very difficult to continue to wade through day after day. There were moments, for example, when an attack happened and the men on these forums would go wild, 
praising the attacker, praising the murderer, um, sharing videos that they detained illegally of women dying and complaining that the audio wasn't loud enough and they couldn't hear them scream, um, talking about how these men were martyrs to the cause and encouraging each other to go and emulate them. There were men exchanging um, sexual abuse advice about how to attack women in their lives. There were days when I would come across um, without uh, any kind of warning, I would suddenly stumble across a page that was dedicated to me. So, um, for example, a website that was just men swapping stories and fantasies about how they would rape me and what kind of internal injuries they could give me. And those were always um, particularly jarring and difficult days. Um, so it was a really difficult experience. But throughout, the more I uncovered, the more horrified I was that nobody in my real world, normal life, had any idea what I was talking about when I told them about the book I was writing and what I was researching. It was a complete mystery to them. And so the more I uncovered and the more I saw how huge these communities were and how, how deep the hatred was, the more I, I guess I felt a sense of urgency to, to write the book and to get this out there so that people could know that this is going on. So the first step is awareness, which, as you said, and I, I, I would agree with you, most of us are not aware of the magnitude of this and um, and the type of people who are involved in it, as you say. Um, so what do we do to change this? But, I mean, the first step, yes, read your book, awareness, you know, inform people. And then what? Because some of this happens at the most, uh, as in looking at your book, it's at the highest form of government, like uh, Breitbart News and Steve Bannon. And um, so what, how do you change? What do you, what does one do? So I think we need to see action on a number of different fronts at once. Once There isn't any silver bullet that will fix this, but we can tackle it from a number of different angles to be most effective. We need to see policy change in that we need to see these groups recognized as terrorists and as extremists, particularly when they're carrying out acts of violence in the name of this terrorist ideology that are designed to um, explicitly attack a specific demographic group, to murder them with the aim of, aim of, of inducing terror and creating societal change. You know, that is absolutely the bare definition of terrorism. So at policy level and at um, international level, we need to see countries recognizing that these are forms of terrorism and treating them as such. We need to see um, social media platforms held to account where they are aiding and abetting these groups, where their algorithms, for example, are enabling radicalization to happen. We need to see the media held to account for the way in which it reports on these particular issues and on sexual violence more widely, because it really risks um, feeding into and enabling these messages when you've also got mainstream media carrying kind of pieces that encourage those myths about false rape allegations, for example, which are the kind of currency in which these groups operate. And finally, I think we really need to see education because a lot of this is about social attitudes. It's about, you know, really essential, normalized basic ideas and attitudes and behaviors towards women. And if we could get young people to have conversations about these things at school from a really young age, if we could tackle some of these thoughts before young people become radicalized in the first place, that would be much more effective than seeking to de-radicalize them later on. There isn't any good reason why every young person in the country shouldn't be learning about sexual consent and respect and healthy relationships at school. Mm -hmm. I think that's beginning to happen, but that is a very slow 
process and it's so politicized and it, obviously it's different in different communities. But as you say, number one, then was you're saying, first of all, you have to label these. You have to label this correctly. You have to label what's happening correctly. We have to talk about terrorism because that's yeah. what it is and prevent young men to, from being radicalized rather than trying to de-radicalize them. But when you say start at a very young age, what are you talking about, elementary school? So I think in terms of education, there's no reason we can't start it right at the beginning of elementary school. And people always think that that's really radical and, and shocking uh, to talk about this stuff then. But nobody thinks it's controversial that we teach kids when they start elementary school, you shouldn't hit another child, right? That's normal. We all accept that even though we're talking about violence there, but we're doing it in an age-appropriate way, right? Well, you can do this in an age-appropriate way as well. There's no reason we can't also teach children at that age, this is your body and you get to choose what happens to your body. Nobody else gets to say, and that's somebody else's body and they get to choose what happens to their body. That's their choice. That's basic consent, but it's obviously a gentle and age-appropriate way to start the building blocks for it to be then built on later on. So, of course, we could start it from a young age. We just don't necessarily have the political will to do it. So how are you trying to engage? How, I mean, I, I assume, obviously, you wrote your book, but other ways, right now, what are you doing? I mean, are you speaking publicly? You're on, obviously, you're on radio. You're, um, what else? Internationally, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. So the book was obviously an attempt to try and get awareness of this more into the mainstream. Um, But I also work very closely with schools and universities um, around the country, but also internationally to talk to young people about these issues and to try and provide them with a forum where they can raise their worries and insecurities and have open discussions about this. And I also work a lot with teachers and with parents to try and give them the tools and empower them to feel able to support young people in, in dealing with these issues and tackling them. So is this the, this is part of, I would assume, the sexism project? Well, the Everyday Sexism Project is um, started as a website. It was in 2012. Um, it's, it's connected, of course, but it's kind of separate from this particular project. Um, that was very much about forcing people to recognize the reality of daily experiences of gender inequality. So it's a collection of hundreds of thousands of testimonies of women's experiences from all over the world um, of daily workplace discrimination, street harassment, sexual abuse, sexual violence. Um, And it's something that hopefully exists to offer a space of safety and solidarity and support for people who've experienced it, but also a space of learning and um, awareness raising for those who haven't. It's a kind of uh, 21st century digital version of the feminist consciousness raising circles of the 1970s, if you like. So if we want to become a part of it or join, what do we do? Is there, a, is there a, web, a website we can go to? There is. It's everydaysexism.com, and anybody there can share their testimony, their experience, their thoughts, as well as reading hundreds of thousands of other people's experiences. And you can also search by keyword, which I think can be very illuminating for people. People often want to say, well, this isn't happening in my industry. I understand that some women face sexism in the workplace, but it doesn't happen where I work. So I think it can be quite useful to put in a keyword. You know, if let's say you're an architect or an engineer or you work in computing, whatever it is, type that into the search 
program and you'll be able to see entries coming up from people who probably work in exactly the same field as you. And that can be quite helpful and eye-opening as well. Or if you're somebody who thinks that women should just report to the police and everything would be fixed, then, you know, type the word police in there and you'll be able to see how complex the picture is with thousands of stories from women about experiences of coming forward to the police and being disbelieved or dismissed or blamed for what's happened. So it's a useful way to get a real picture of the problem in quite a detailed way without having to require women to relive their trauma and abuse to educate you. So, in other words, we're not going to, I, I would assume that it, this this is across the board, and as you say, it's in every country, it's in every profession, every job, uh, it's out there for all of, for for everyone, for all of us who are affected by this, and uh, it's called the Everyday Sexism Project, and you can go online uh, to that website and find any other, and the website for the book and or other things that you are doing um, that we can... Um, that we can uh, go online and, and look and, and uh, get a picture of what you are doing. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the book is Men Who Hate Women. Um, it's available from all bookshops, bookstores, your local bookstore online or from Amazon. Um, and uh, on Instagram at Laura underscore Bates, double underscore, you can see details about upcoming events where I'll be talking about the book. Um, and, and other initiatives and activism that's going on. Great. Laura, thanks so much for being on the show today. Uh, Men Who Hate Women is the title of the book from Incels to Pickup Artists, The Truth About Extreme Misogyny and How It Affects Us All. And she's also the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project. Great, great talking to you today. So much good information. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 